Okay, so it is recording. Fingers crossed this time. Fingers crossed. So, uh, morning, everyone. So, I'm going to put you all on mute. Okay, so yeah, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our 11th, I think, now, Academic Archer Saturday Omnibus. Uh, keep going strong. Um, same format as ever two papers, two Q&As, all that chat in between. Um, some really good ones and some ones that are by popular demand uh, this week again as well. Um, they, the presenters will share their screens with you. You don't need to do anything with that. Just sit back and uh, listen. Questions and comments can go into the chat and you can also raise your hand. Uh, there's a way to do that if you go into the participants thing or however you're looking at it in the dashboard, there's something there that you can put your hand up. And that will mean that myself and Nicola get to see that you have a question, so it can come directly to you. And I think without further ado, uh, Nicola, do you want to do your intro? Hello, everybody. So yes, thank you for sticking with us. I have to confess, this is definitely one of my favorite hours of the week. Um, so uh, I'm delighted that you're all uh, still showing up. Uh, I wanted to say again, a shout out to our newbies. Uh, I think part of the sort of, we've been building the community and obviously the, the, the chat on the quack gets extremely um, kind of bonkers. Um, we, we do have a lot of sort of um, in jokes and kind of community stuff, but I don't want it to be an exclusive space. We never have. So delighted if, oh, hi Gary, hello. <laughs> didn't, didn't, we don't want it to feel like we're having a conversation that you can't be involved in. So welcome if you are new and you'll, you'll kind of get used to us, I hope. So um, I've just noticed that my jumpsuit looks extremely indecent, so I might have to uh, change the angle. Sorry, everybody. I know we don't have very many straight men on the call, so it's kind of fine. Um, so uh, Karen's paper, Queering Shula. It's safe to say it became a controversy from the minute we got the abstract. Cara and I, for very, uh, for various reasons, are extremely interested both in queer theory, kind of queer lives, all that kind of thing. And, and, and so, in fact, I was just reflecting on having seen Judith Butler in um, LA that time when we were in, in San Francisco, that time we went to AAG and, you know, um, my sort of undergraduate work was all about um, contemporary debates and sociological and psychological theory. And we had a kind of core module, which was essentially queer theory and cyber psychology kind of put together. And essentially, I've never really been the same since. The notion of disrupting of category asks you to interrogate everything which is a norm, everything which is kind of, you know, and we do talk an awful lot in academic cultures about what is normal and kind of what's being presented as desirable and whether the yeah, academic cultures is, um, is reflecting some sort of notion of Middle England or some sort of social arbitration or, or whether it is a unique thing, uh, uh, you know, it's double constructed reality. Um, so, Queer theory is kind of quite dear to us. So when the paper came in, and I don't know if you know this, Karen, we had a bit of a row about it. I mean, I know you're amazed that Carl and I could be anything other than totally harmonious. And I was nervous that when you use queer theory and queer concepts, but you step away from the actual 
um, homosexual content. So essentially Karen's paper is about disrupting kind of het norm narrative in later life. It's absolutely brilliant and I can't wait to hear it again. But the thing, my question was, was it being handled um, with respect to the, um, the homosexual and other life experience kind of literature, which is deep and goes back 30, 40 years. And we wondered if the author was going to be skilled enough to kind of weave that very difficult balance. Because no one's suggesting that Shula is gay, a gay woman, but she, we are suggesting that she's disrupting um, a het norm narrative. We didn't, I didn't need to worry. Karen exploded into academic arches and we immediately knew that the, the, the paper was going to be extraordinary. I think, Karen, you've only been with us since Sheffield, is that right? But you, we just, it, your take on the material, your humour, your laugh, your being the last person in the bar, basically, we didn't need to worry. You're, you immediately found your way right straight into our hearts. And um, the paper also is bloody brilliant, which is always a good thing. But you also have been such an amazing mentor to new people from Sheffield onwards because you are so friendly and so open. So there we are. That's just me saying I really like you, Karen. Uh, so unless you, if you don't know, Karen works as mainly as a, a counsellor and therapist. And um, you can follow all her amazing practice that she does with, um, you know, lots of issues of gender and sexuality. But I pass you to Karen Karen, are you Karen Pollock? I always think of you as Karen Pollock, but I don't know what, you're, what you prefer as your last name. Yeah, it is just for Facebook. Queering Shula. I don't know where to start after that. <laughs> you can just say you think we're old cows. Right, there we go. It will take a moment to load. I have the world's slowest laptop. Apologies for this. But um, this is slightly revisited, as we will see, because I didn't think we could um, go on without mentioning Meredith. So, mm. yes, querying sure they revisited. So, we're starting with the word queer, and it feels really important to say exactly what I mean by that and to accept that for some people it's an uncomfortable and even a, a word that comes from hate speech. It has many different uses. It comes as an adjective, such as that's a very queer thing to say. The first published use of queer is actually in Sherlock Holmes, where a corrupt policeman is described as being on Queer Street. And that's part of the evidence people give for it being originally a Scots word that sort of moved into the north and then further south. It's been used as a noun, usually in a negative way, as in he's one of those queers. It's more recently become a claimed or rather a reclaimed identity, as in not gay as in happy, but queer as in, I'm sure you could all read the word. That was a chant from ACT UP in the 80s originally, 
when there was a lot of activism around HIV and um, particularly about Reagan refusing to fund HIV and people were taking the word that had been weaponized and used against them and saying, yes, you know, I am queer. Then we come to the verb queering, as in queering Shula. In queering Jane Austen, Sedgwick offended just about everybody. And it's the, um, the verb and partly the identity that I'm largely talking about today. When you, when you queer media, art, literature, as Nicola just wonderfully introduced, it's about disrupting what's there, but also looking beyond the surface to see perhaps themes that won't overt, but which could be covertly seen. Queering can be a subversion of the norms, and it can also be a refusal of the norms. There's also a more recent use of queer as an identity, which just to mean LGBT, so Tate Britain had um, Queer Britain. Um, the BBC had a Queer Nation strand. It's become used as an umbrella term, and this is why I really understand what you, you said in the introduction, Nicola, because I'm deeply, deeply uncomfortable with queer being used just to mean LGBT. It, it feels almost like a branding that is being imposed by heterosexual cisgender people without looking at the community and saying, how do you use this word? How do you want this word to be used? But we're not talking about that today. We're talking about largely as the identity that is being claimed and as um, the verb. Now, I'm going to attempt again the impossible, just as I did in Sheffield, which is to explain queer theory in 10 minutes. In an essay I once wrote, queer is punk in a world of easy listening elevator music. Queer is meant to stand out, to challenge. Foucault, who's probably the father of queer theory, where Butler is the mother, and I really hope that Butler wouldn't find it offensive to be described in that way, just thinking I've linked her with Foucault in a very odd way. Um, when he visited San Francisco, he said, I am no longer homosexual. I am gay. What Foucault was saying there was that homosexuality was a medical condition which had been used to describe aberration from the norm, deviance and perversion. In his visiting of San Francisco, he refuted the idea that he belonged to an imposed category and instead he claimed something of his own, which was being gay. This resisting of the history of medical pathologization in monolithic categories is, is really central to the idea of queer theory. And it's very central to the idea of queering things. Because when we queer things, we are always saying that there is more than the monolith, that there can be diversity. But this choosing not to fit in can be quite a shock. What if I don't want to fit in? What if I don't want to set the dominant norms? Does that mean I want to overturn the dominant norms? Or does that mean that I am going to exist separate and apart from the dominant norms? So 
from The Trouble with Normal, which is an amazing book, we clear things when we re resist regimes of the normal. The normative ideals of aspiring to normal in identity, behaviour, appearance. Can I get rid of your pictures? Yes, apologies for that, you were over the quote. And this quote from Sedgwick, I think, really sums up this idea that we're talking about, is there a world of possibility? Is there a world of multiplicity, which is wider, and some might say deeper, than the, there is one option, there is one way to be. That's one of the things queer can refer to. The open mesh of possibilities, gaps, overlaps, dissonances and resonances, lapses and excesses of meaning when the constituent elements of anyone's gender, of anyone's sexuality aren't made or can't be made to signify monolithically. Perhaps the most controversial thing I ever wrote, and I still occasionally get angry emails about, was an essay entitled Can, Quit, Can Straight People Be Queer? I actually think that it's vitally important that we say they can. Because this mustn't be about behavior because that goes back to the monolith of medicalizing, of saying it's which bit goes where that gives you your identity. Identity should be about the internal. Um, but I'm gonna, I could go on to a very, very wide diversion that I really mustn't. Anyone's gender, anyone's sexuality, including everyone in this room has, who's always identified as cisgender, that means not trans and heterosexual, they aren't monolithic either. None of us are. So, one of the things that we all grow up with, we all have imposed on us from birth is heteronormativity. Heteronormativity is the uh, dominant narrative that we all get married, raise children, we marry someone of the opposite gender. Merriam-Webster defines this of, of relating to or based on the attitude that heterosexuality is the only normal and natural expression of sexuality. Now, there's a um, good link back to Foucault here in his rejection of the word homosexual and claiming of the word gay. Because, of course, what he was doing there was saying, I won't be defined by being abnormal. I won't be defined by being other. I will claim my sexuality. Now, within the arches, we, of course, we do have other non heteronormative examples of families. We have Tracy, who is, as always, is our queen. And we have Helen, who very much defied heteronormativity in having the boys by surrogacy. Sorry, having Henry by surrogacy. A really important aspect of heteronormativity is the relationship escalator, which I describe is the scaffolding which holds up heteronormativity. The relationship escalator is the idea that it is normal and natural 
for relationships to move in a certain way. So we have first date kiss, then sex, then move in together, then get engaged and get married. Except already I know some of you will be saying, that wasn't my relationship escalator. It wasn't my grandma's either. Which shows us that this is actually a social construct rather than the normal natural way everything goes on. But it is imposed from the fairy stories we read, the songs we listen to, the books we read. Part of queering literature is looking at seeing that imposition, that there could have been alternatives, that there were narratives that we were not hearing that were not being given to us. Many people's relationship escalator would have been first date, hold hands, kiss, get engaged, get married, have sex. Where those are similar is the idea that one step must inevitably lead to the next step, that the movement upward is always a positive, and that the stepping off of the relationship escalator is of itself a failure because of the idea that you're moving up towards some ultimate goal. So should you, for example, have multiple relationships or you have a friendship that you consider to be as deep and important as a romantic relationship, you're not on the escalator and it's seen as somehow not as valid as those who are on the escalator. The relationship escalator is really important when we come to this. Shula and Adam and Ian. Because some people might say to me, why do you need to queer the archers? Because it has a gay couple. It has Adam and Ian. <laughs> so I know what I said next in the chef, but I'll say it again. I really worry about Adam and Ian because I do not see myself and my community represented in them. When I look at Adam and Ian, I can't tell who tops and who bottoms. By which I'm saying they are heterosexual in everything except the label that has been imposed on them by the scriptwriters. Now, in the bar at Sheffield, I had a really good conversation with someone who said, but aren't I imposing my desire to see a certain type of queerness on Adam and Ian, which I think is a, a very fair, valid comment. There are LGBT couples who behave no differently from their heterosexual neighbours. But when they are the only example in a piece of media, I think it's okay to say, I want more from them. I want to see them as something other than married, monogamous, on the relationship escalator, gender conforming. If we change the gender of Adam or Ian, either of them, into being a woman, none of the storylines would change. There was not a single one. We could simply have an, you know, a woman who had to access surrogacy. That worries me when they're meant to be the gay couple of Ambridge, or as, <laughs> as Tracy recently described them, our village gays. The very fact that they went for surrogacy 
which is so different from the majority of the queer experience, almost felt like someone knew more about Elton John than the average LGBT experience. The history of queerness is claiming of spaces, spaces that we often have been denied access to or spaces that we've had to build for ourselves. The bars, the saunas, the bus stations, the cottages, these sort of liminal spaces which are disappearing from the narrative, which at the moment have been completely erased. And they feel something quite erasive to me about Adam and Ian. Which brings us to Shula. Shula left a relationship rather than stay on the escalator and received huge criticism for this. Jamie was very angry with her. Um, her own mother said that it is the job of women to stay in unhappy marriages for the benefit of the man. She, she did something that is very recognisable to a lot of LGBT people which is realised that her heart was telling her she had to be true to herself. And this brings me to the concept of queer time, which is the idea that because during the teenage years, many queer people aren't able to be their authentic selves, aren't able to explore their identity, it happens later and more slowly. Queer times like getting the steps at Covent Garden Station rather than going up in the escalator. You might end up at the same place, but you do so in a slower and perhaps less linear way. Arlene Lev, who's one of the leading experts on working with transgender people, um, built a coming out model for trans people. And one of the things she identified was that... Um, it's very common for trans people to come out after their children have left home because they've been worried about the impact on the family. So late 40s to mid 50s has a huge kind of cohort of people coming out as trans. Shula, in some ways, did a very similar thing. She, she held on to the marriage, she held on to the should, the relationship escalator, the heteronormativity, until she saw Dan established you know, as an officer. And then she felt able finally to live for herself and not other people. Queering characters is speculative fiction that queer people create for ourselves because we are not seeing ourselves. And I believe something's gone wrong in a show that's meant to represent many different communities when we don't see ourselves. And this, this brings me to Meredith, which in some ways I just, I find both heartbreaking and hilarious at the same time. For those don't, who don't know, um, there's a, a storyline where Lily Pargeter had an older male um, lover slash teacher who needs to be struck off. I think he has been, actually. 
and in order to see Ross, she invented her own Bunbury. I've invented an invaluable permanent invalid called Bunbury in order that I may be able to go down to the country whenever I choose. Meredith was Lily's Bunbury, and she mentioned Meredith so much to her mother that um, Elizabeth thought that they must be lovers and wondered if Lily might be gay. A completely imaginary, invisible, invented gay partner for a character to me sums up why we need to queer this narrative because it sums up that the the queer characters are not being seen they are they are bumbries this is from the queer nation manifesto this was given out by act up uh, hiv charity in 1990 on New York's Pride March, which then was very much a demonstration um, and political protest. Being queer means leading a different sort of life. It's not about the mainstream profit margins, patriotism, patriarchy, or being assimilated. It's not about executive directors, privilege, and elitism. It's about being on the margins, defining ourselves. I think that's very much what Shula did, and I'll still defend her as the only one. Let me stop sharing the screen. There we go. I know I went fast. I always go fast when I'm nervous. <laughs> Thank you very oh, much. You can see the round of applause that you're getting there. It's fantastic. Um, I've lost Nicola on the screen. Nicola, can you unmute yourself and say something? There's a lot of chat going on here, which is really interesting. A lot about Henry the Hoover. Oh, yeah. Hello. <laughs> I have to say, I didn't, I took out the line about, I'm not saying Shula is a demisexual, um, transmasculine person, because we didn't know she was going to go into the church when I wrote that. Mm. And I was actually holding in my heart that she was yeah. going to come out as lesbian. They, they, they really toyed with us on that i mean so in um in the alison hindell interview and they played this out because also it was played back to us when we did woman's hour the um they you know we are wondering whether another man is the answer for shula was what they were saying and that's what we faithfully and, and i think we all were hoping i think um so so back to the kind of core then and bear in mind, because this is, you know, this is sensitive stuff, everybody. We have people who sleep with nobody, who uh, sleep with their own gender and who sleep with the opposite gender in the quack. So we want to be respectful of everybody's lifestyle stuff. I think it's interesting, Karen, that I, and I'm with you, like the aesthetic. So a certain kind of gayness is, view, the thing you said at the beginning about it's punk in a world of easy listening. That sets up then the disappointment in Adam and Ian as this het norm kind of vanilla, you know. And it's true, once we can sort of free ourselves of these categories of kind of, you know, if you think about, think about how people used to talk about the coming out process, the sort of revelatory, um, this is who I really am now uh, process. 
you know, these are kind of relics of a scenario under which sleeping with your own gender was viewed as disruptive to the kind of moral center or whatever. And one thing that was in the chat, in the quack was, once you get into a situation where people view gender as a far more binary old business, then you do free yourself a bit, I think, from some of this stuff. I mean, I don't, uh, you know, if it's less clear who is, um, as you say, you know, who, who is the top and who is the bottom, because you've got a more fluid notion of gender, that can change this stuff. And I think we are in a sort of change moment where it's different for younger people. I don't know what you think about any of that. I, I think that's really true, but I think that that's one of the reasons Adam and Ian feel quite erasive to me because if they were in any way sort of challenging to the norms, but instead they're meant to be presented as this very straightforward gay couple. I so don't know. It, that, it's that like I, the scriptwriters want to have their cake and eat it around them. And I, I see the point. But I mean, Adam's uh, roving eye is framed differently to Brian's. Mm. There is a different, there is something else going on there. Mm. Although then we get to Charlie and the fact that the word bisexual will never be mentioned. Charlie. So, Charlie. We've got a question for Victoria there. Do you want to unmute yourself? Yeah, I was Great. just wondering, not really to, so much the storyline, but do you think that there are more trans or bisexual people coming out when their children have left school? Because it's still probably 20 years ago or 15 years ago, it wasn't considered, it was, it's more difficult to be um, to gay or whatever. And therefore they've decided to grow up in a heterosexual environment while their children are young. And then when their children can cope with the situation, come out, whereas it's too difficult to do when they're very much. I mean, that's what Lev's research found. You know, she she asked people why they waited to their fifties to come out, and they were like, "We didn't want the kids to be bullied. We were worried. We were we didn't want to lose our kids." And we've we've just had a huge example of this with Philip Schofield. You know, he he always knew he was gay, but he didn't feel he could have the career he wanted if and I. I don't want to put words into his mouth, but having seen his interviews, I think he thought he couldn't have a family as well. And he clearly wanted a family. But for those now under, say, 21, 23, probably they wouldn't have to hide their sexuality. They'd be feeling much more relaxed coming out. So mm. there's going to be less of mm. that changing later on. Mm. And I, I think that's what we're seeing in, I know, in my own children's schools. You know, there were children who were out at 12 or 13. That wouldn't have happened when I was 12 or 13. Mm. So is I mean, it... Right, and I think, but this is back to the whole thing. Like, you know, those of us born in the 70s, um, you're, you know, you're drawn to kind of queer culture as a kind of subculture and as something edgy and interesting. But those born in the 90s and 2000s, you, edgy and interesting is sort of you can find it in all kinds of ways and who you want to kiss or fondle doesn't kind of there, there, there is a kind of breaking apart I think of some of the connections between an aesthetic and a you know a sexual preference and all that kind of stuff although uh, I, just, uh, 
at the same time, I think for a lot of younger younger people, it, it's returning to how it was far more in the 80s. If you see like the way that, and I'm thinking about people I know on my Facebook, have intersected with the Black Lives Matters thing. It, some things empowering young people were feeling like, yes, you're telling me I can be whatever I want, but when I try and do that, still heteronormativity is pushed as the ideal. I um, I grew up in a very rural area with a gay dad, and um, it was horrific in many ways for both of us. Um, and I've seen so many changes which are incredible and amazing and right and just. But I still, when I'm back in that countryside place, still hear so much homophobia done in a jocular way, you know, which is, it's just still as bad. And I, I don't know with my nephews, for example, who are sort of seven to 10 now, um, for them growing up in a rural area, would it be the same if they, if they were to feel the same coming out? So um, I don't want to perpetuate a kind of rural urban divide but I don't think it's necessarily easy for all kids to come out these days. A friend of mine for her doctorate is trying to write a model for the NHS to support trans families when, like, so families of trans kids when they come out. So she's been doing her qualitative research, um, interviewing the parents and the children. And one of the things she's discovered that's really shocked her is that even in LGBT families, the kids are worried the parents will be prejudiced. And when she's, when she's dug into that, they say, well, that's what we see. So the, the cultural narrative is so strong that parents will reject the children. And she, she said that lesbian parents, trans parents, queer parents of trans kids and the trans kids said I was still worried I'd be rejected. Mm -hmm. So there's something still really deeply ingrained and unless you bring up a kid never watching TV, never listening to the radio, never reading a book, they're going to pick up the idea that there's still some people for whom it's not okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. I is... think, um, so there's a really interesting thing in the quack about um, asexual and celibate um, identification, mm -hmm. Which seems to be the last taboo, really. It's kind of, you know, whereas, and she's, is it, is it Christine? Do you want to speak, Christine, or do you want me to speak for you? Do you want to unmute yourself and join in, or shall I just keep? I'll just do it. Hi. Hiya. Hiya. Um, I just thought that there's an underlying, which actually I think is a masculine underlying thing that everybody, wants to have sex all the time and mm. therefore being celibate or asexual or whatever is seen as not normal mm. um and it which is kind of interesting because in my grandmother's day that would have been a perfectly valid choice mm. and mm. i don't think that everybody who chose that choice was necessarily actually a closet lesbian which mm. is the underlying assumption the it's such a huge problem. So there's a memorandum of conversion therapy in the UK that came out in 2016. And um, that means it's you, 
it's not illegal because it's not illegal to practice conversion therapy in Britain, but it, you can't work for the NHS. You can't be a member of any like, regulatory body for cancers or psychotherapists. The 2016 version was the second version. The first version, 2015, didn't include asexuality because a number of psychologists and psychiatrists said they actually wanted to be able to work with people who didn't want sex to make them want sex. Mm. And you think that was five years ago. Mm. That's, that's how much this, the dominant norm of everybody must be sexual. And as you say, we go back a hundred years, they, we've actually got worse on that, I think. And you go back 2000 years, and you've got St. Paul saying, why do you all use it as what to have sex? Mm. I'm mindful of time. Yep. Sorry, so, I could burble all day about this. <laughs> I know it's 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 um it's it is a fascinating issue, and it's it's one it's a huge one, and I think it is a very big one for the archers as well in terms of what it does and doesn't represent. Uh, so yeah, we, we talk about that a lot, don't we? Susie Lloyd says there's a gov.uk petition requesting conversion therapy be made illegal. So I don't know, Susie, if you can find a link for that and put it into the chat. I think that'd be a good one to post. Um, yeah. So we, I love we move on? I just want to say one more thing, which I love, which is, so having introduced at the beginning my kind of, um, how much I love kind of queer theory and everything, uh, we had a very kind of flamboyant lecturer who did end our semester by going to Brazil to, um, to transition. He was called Angel Guado Lopez, and he was absolutely amazing. And partly because it was a very live issue for him, but we as kind of undergraduates all did this sort of screening for gender reassignment. And that was at the time when I was falling in love with my husband. So ne we sat next to each other doing, would we pass for gender reassignment? And it was really interesting because they would have made John a woman but they thought I was already a man. So, <laughs> so, so that's kind of, you know, and that's, that's been in there in terms of our, how we've related to each other since. I think it's, you know, it's really interesting stuff. I love it. And Karen, you just handled it with absolutely such finesse. Um, and as I say, oh yes, everybody's loving it in the, in the quack. Um, right, what's next? I've completely forgotten now, hang on. Um, I've lost my page. Cara, what's the next paper? We've got a hundred things coming up. Yes, what one thing is a hundred things. Oh, yes, <laughs> Felicity, are you there? Can we see yeah, you? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. So Felicity, um, this is an absolutely brilliant, uh, well, it's an entire expedition into material culture and its role in Ambridge. Many of you will have heard as Radio 4 Addicts. A uh, hundred things that made the modern world, and then fifty things that made the modern economy. Um, again, the very, very live issue within sociology, sort of nineties and two thousands, um, that the way that um, yeah, material culture serves to kind of uh, create, um, you know, category, etc. And I, I won't embarrass myself anymore since this is definitely getting into the world of of uh, Dr. Courage, but. Um, a kind of pop material culture analysis as, as, as popularized by Niall Ferguson um, has been amazing. And Felicity, is, this is just a completely classic academic archer's segue. 
she, she will tell you that her um, work as a volunteer at the David Parr House in Cambridge and the thinking about how to, um, how to make that collection connect led to this, this piece of work, which was kind of done with and through um, a kind of uh, uh, crowd, crowd um, exploration of material culture in Ambridge. But I won't mangle it anymore and I'll leave it to Felicity to explain a uh, hundred things that made Ambridge. Okay, thank you. I'm going to start screen sharing. Uh, let me find the right one. Okay, can everybody hear me and see my screen? Good. Are we good? Yeah. Okay. Um, so as Nicola said, the title of this talk was inspired by various Radio 4 series, particularly Neil McGregor's uh, series and book, A History of the World in a Hundred Objects, which describes exhibits from the British Museum and sets them in their historical and anthropological context. Obviously, I couldn't get through 100 objects in a five-minute quick pitch in Sheffield, although some of the peer reviewers seemed to think I was going to try and do that. Um, <laughs> this is a quick look at the significance of material culture in the archers. The first use of the term material culture has been traced back to the splendidly named Augustus Henry Lane Fox Pitt Rivers. <laughs> collection of archaeological and ethnographic objects formed the basis of the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, first opened to visitors in 1887. Pitt Rivers wrote that his readers should consider material culture as the outward signs and symbols of particular ideas of the mind. If you've been to the Pitt Rivers Museum, you'll know that he collected everyday artifacts as well as fine art items, and these were arranged by category rather than by country or historical period. For example, there are cases displaying coiled baskets from around the world or model boats or snuff taking equipment. Since the mid 1970s, there's been a growing interest in material culture across many disciplines, most obviously history, but also archeology, span social anthropology, history of art, human geography, design, and the decorative arts. My personal interest arose from volunteering with the David Parr House in Cambridge. This is a tiny terrace cottage, which David Parr, a working class Victorian artist decorator, bought in 1886 and lived in until his death in 1927. Over that time, he decorated the house in the style of the Victorian Gothic revival churches and arts and crafts houses he worked on every day. This is the drawing room. As an employee of the Cambridge Decorative Arts Company, F.R. Leach and Sons, who took on commissions all over the country, not just in Cambridge, from the Isle of Wight to Dundee, working with well-known designers, including William Morris and G.F. Bodley. These pictures are from St. Salvador's Church in Dundee, where I was lucky enough to go last year. Um, David Parr worked on this church when he was still an apprentice with Frederick Leach and Sons. After Parr's death in 1927, his granddaughter, Elsie, who was then aged 12, 
came to live in the house to keep her grandmother company and stayed there for the next 85 years, during which time she married and had two daughters. So the Parr House is very special in that it was a home for the same family continuously for 125 years, which is pretty rare in Cambridge, which has a famously transient population. Because of Elsie's respect for her grandfather's legacy, very few changes were made to the structure or decor of the house while she lived there. But she accumulated a collection of her own favourite objects. And over the course of 2018, a team of volunteers, of whom I was one, examined and catalogued these, along with items which she had kept from David Parr's time. These are some of the items we catalogued. On the left is Elsie's doll's house, which she brought to the house when she was 12, and uh, which her daughters later played with. The middle picture is her sewing box, which also contains lots of uh, newspaper cuttings about the royal family. She was a, an avid monarchist. Um, and uh, oh, the decision was made to keep even the relatively modern objects in the house because um, our chair of trustees has pointed out museums are now often so full that 20th and 21st century objects are in many cases not being collected. And for me, what I love about the house is the layers of history in the rooms and their inhabitants, illustrated by the variety of functional and emotional significance of all these objects. I just want to show you quickly three of my favourites from different periods in the life of the house. This is a set of dominoes, probably late 19th or earliest 20th century. Um, no TV or the internet, people had to entertain themselves with cards, books and other games. This is a book in the school story genre which was presented to Elsie as a Sunday school prize in 1929. She obviously treasured it because it not only still has its original dust cover, but it's been given additional protection with a brown paper cover which turned out when we opened it to be an inside out paper bag from Eden Lilly, once a well-known Cambridge department store, no longer with us, showing pictures of ladies in the fashions of the time. And finally, a wooden school ruler belonging to one of Elsie's daughters dated to the 1960s, partly because I know that she's about my own age and partly because of Cliff written multiple times in Biro on the flat side of the ruler. And now to consider Ambridge. What items will future historians or archaeologists pore over analysing the way of life and family relationships? In my talk at the Sheffield Conference, I made a few suggestions. In his book, The Comfort of Things, Daniel Miller writes, people sediment possessions, lay them down as foundations, material walls mortared with memory, strong supports that come into their own when times are difficult and the people who laid them down face experience of loss. The power of objects to bring back memories in this way was illustrated in the story of the Aldridge's departure from home farm. Debbie retrieving her old jewellery box with the ballerina that doesn't stand up anymore. Jennifer and Peggy reminiscing about evenings spent with all the family gathered on the old sofa in the farmhouse kitchen. Similarly, when Lily and Rex were decorating the Christmas tree at Lower Loxley, Lily's memories of past Christmases were stirred by the homemade tree ornaments. 
What will historians make of a shoebox in the bottom of a wardrobe at Brookfield containing model farm animals with David Archer, my farm, in childish handwriting on the lid? Will they know that David's discovery of this collection years later and the emotions it aroused were responsible for his decision not to move to Northumberland, thereby averting a crisis in the Ambridge social network? In the grounds of Ambridge Hall, archaeologists might uncover a large stone bearing the inscription Resurgam. Here it is, with Ed, not that Ed. The experts may speculate that it could be a mon monument commemorating the successful revival of the Canterbury Tales, performed under the direction of Mrs. Linda Snell in December 2018. You never know. And maybe future archaeological or historical investigations will unearth a grubby collection of rags attached to a length of string, subsequently identified as a 20th or 21st century decorative artifact known as bunting. After the Sheffield conference, Cara suggested that the academic archers community might like to propose further objects to try and get the total up to 100. Needless to say, they were delighted to, to rise to the challenge. 143 different objects were suggested in 185 comments on the Facebook page. I eventually pruned the list to around 100 and classified them into groups. In the spirit of Pitt Rivers, these were not chronological, but were categories such as agricultural machinery and vehicles or food and drink. This is when I realized that a significant number of the suggestions related to specific incidents such as the Sid Jolene shower scene, sorry, or Shula playing the recorder on Christmas day at the age of 10. Someone clearly has an encyclopedic knowledge of Ambridge history. I'm not gonna read them all out because you can read the whole process and final or maybe not quite final list on the Academic Archers website in a blog post on the news tab. You have to scroll back quite a long way. Um, but here are the categories with a few examples in each. Many of the items suggested represented traditional farming methods rather than modern intensive factory farming. And as such are a reminder of the origins of the programme, which was supposed to be an educational tool for the post-war agricultural community. For example, farm implements belonging to the first generation of archers. Others were more modern artifacts, a quad bike, or the polytunnels, which have additional connotations as a site for romantic encounters. Community. This was a loose collection of places, buildings, and other items which illustrate participatory aspects of village life. For example, Susan's tabard, a bell from St. Stephen's, the single wicket trophy. Memory. As well as the items I've already mentioned, uh, there were things like the mangle, which belonged to my Susan, Joe Grundy's late wife, or the Staffordshire Bull Terrier ornament, which Peggy gave to Jack in memory of Captain, and of course the old toys. Now, food and drink, not easy to include in a collection such as the Pitt Rivers Museum or the British Museum, but since the Ambridge Museum is a virtual one, possible deterioration could be disregarded. Uh, local produce and home cooking featured strongly in this group. For example, lemon drizzle cake, Jill's flapjack, Susan's chili recipe, or the Brookfield Arger. 
Um, clothing and jewellery, lots and lots in this category. Some of them refer to specific incidents as well, but can also be seen to typify cultural or community activities. Um, interesting that the last item on this list, the bracelet that Pat gave to Natasha, was the single item which people on the Academic Archers Facebook group mentioned more than any other. Um, I think partly because um, it was very live at the time I was collecting the items. Um, but also there was the whole thing about, you know, it had been given to her by Helen and Helen disapproved of her giving it to Natasha and so on and so on. So it had lots of significance. Uh, final category was character. Um, although this grouping contains items which are representative of specific village characters, they can also be representative of class, attitudes, hobbies or occupations. I could go on and on. Every time I mentioned this paper to friends who are Archers listeners, more suggestions were made. And I also had fun coming up with a few more ideas of my own, and I'm, I'm sure you will too. I haven't been looking at the chat, but I've seen that it's been quite active, so um, I'm, I'm going to have a look at it in a minute. Um, finally, just to say that sadly the David Parr House is closed at the moment for obvious reasons. It's a very tiny space. We can only take six people at one time, but do have a look at the website and see various online events that are coming up. We've got an online exhibition called A Space of One's Own with a competition, which is going to be judged by the famous Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen. Stopping sharing and back to Zoom. Amazing. <laughs> Such a round of applause. I love it. It's, it's amazing to see everybody in Houston like that. It's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Can I, can, I just, can I just say that, that Nikki Morland, who is also here this morning, um, is, is another of the David Parr house guides. So she also <laughs> is about the house. Amazing. Hang on. Am I, am I, can you hear me? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely love that, Felicity. I think the quack has gone wild with arch, academic archers' field trips. I think we've all been in our houses too long been, been thinking about coming and doing the... So that your paper takes us to the Pitt Rivers, which I know incredibly well, having so my department, although I was doing contemporary work, encompassed the Pitt Rivers. So we could use the meeting rooms if we could, do it, if we could walk down the road, and some of them are absolutely <laughs> crazy. Yeah. So we should go and see the Pitt Rivers and we should go and see the David Parr House once we're mm. all out and about. I think that would be excellent. That'd be lovely, really lovely. So uh, what's interesting is that nobody ever says that a, um, an, an, an element of the material culture isn't relevant. They always just add more. So it is mm. quite hard to keep it to 100. <laughs> <laughs> Now, another, there was another line talking about how much everybody's enjoying the, the um, sort of craft programmes in this weird time. And I think that that's right, because something about the kind, I've always got the impression from your descriptions of it that it this sort of is quite arts and crafts and very much a lot of the things in the house are made. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's not, it's a sort of harking to a, um, a non-industrial set of objects, you know, things that, are, and, and, I think that in times of kind of stress, we do turn to, I mean, it's like Cara who has become amazing at potting, you know, mm. pottery, 
the visceral nature of creating things really is a comfort I think when particularly mm. when people aren't feeling great I mean I've been just doing all sorts I've been knitting and printing mm. and just anything to keep my hands and my mind occupied mm. so that notion of craft I think um, it w serves as a double metaphor in terms of the making of the things but of course we you know we all know don't we that our, that, that Ambridge is a crafted environment as well it's crafted by the script writers so it's kind of double constructed um, mm. so I always find that very interesting in terms of and particularly and well, I don't know what you think about this um, do you think that Fallon is presented as a kind of curator a sensitive curator of kind of material culture or a bit of a kind of um, a bit of an entrepreneur in that sense is her upcycling kind of treated sort of respectfully or or that she's a bit of a uh, it's a bit opportunistic what do you think Felicity I thought you'd have game on this I think I think she definitely comes across as more entrepreneur opportunistic than than the other really I mean yeah. she's not yeah, we, we haven't we haven't seen much of I mean, we haven't heard much about exactly what she's done to the objects that she's collected, have we? And mm. um, we don't know whether she's um, kind of re recovering old piano stools with William Morris fabric or if she's covering them in leopard print, you know, <laughs> that that that's the kind of example that I would say for that. <laughs> Oh, hang on. I'm just looking. Someone said good question. I wonder what the question was in the quack. Oh, right. Um, the toy bricks used to spell Kenton and Shula. Very good. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's, I, can, I, mean, I can't remember whether they came up or not. Quite a lot of the things that are now coming up in the quack uh, were things that were suggested. But, you know, obviously I didn't read out the whole hundred. This no. morning. You'll have to go back to the uh, Russ's three temperature kettle. Yes, that was definitely one of the things on my list. <laughs> the question in the quack that yeah. someone said, good question. I asked who, um, apart from Fallon, which we don't I agree, we don't know much about what she does, who crafts in, in Ambridge? Mm. Well, um, Peggy knits, doesn't she? And there was that silly thing where she and Lillian were supposedly competing in knitting. Or was that, that was Linda and Lillian, wasn't it? When they were competing yes. in knitting for their, um, their shared grandchild. Um, I don't know really of anybody else. Um, I mean, well, Carol Warren makes tinctures of God knows what. <laughs> oh, that's true, yes. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Oh, and um, Leonard Leonard paints, doesn't he? Leonard paints watercolours. I did, was it was that not a story that he'd actually passed one off as his when it wasn't. Oh right, yes, maybe I can't remember. I'm so, so not interested in Leonard. Sorry. <laughs> Leonard, didn't Leonard do enamels or something at one point? Something. Uh, yeah, possibly. Yeah. yeah. So um, Claire Asbury has got uh, the damning indictment on Fallon. Her upcycled objects are transitory. They come in, get updated and get sold on. So she doesn't <laughs> have her down as a, as a, as a material culture enthusiast. Right. <laughs> but they don't end up in a skip. So they're, they're being preserved, you know, rescued for something. That's true. That's true. I mean, that's it. I think, um, so what I think is fascinating about... I think the craft question is a brilliant one. I mean, as 
you know, certainly Cara knows I use the metaphor of craft all the time because my work, which is always about um, policy networks. So I, you know, statecraft, I'm not really interested in the state, but I am interested in the craft. Mm. So how you weave and how you knit together a kind of policy coalition, that's the metaphor that I kind of live by um, all, the, you know, all the time. And I think that paying attention to the crafting of you know, media narrative or um, a phenomenon or, you know, I find, I, I use that, I use it absolutely all the time. So, ooh, Sarah Playfair, you've been quiet, love. Where did Emma's upcycled coffee table come from? Was that one of Fallon's? Oh God, that was awful, wasn't it? Um, well, we talked about this with Claire's paper that we felt that this just tipped, tipped over into the grotesque and was a sort of mm. horrific, but mm. we did have a resolution, didn't we, in the monologue just now? Mm. True. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was when, taking up um, too much space, wasn't it, in the mobile home? Yes. And I guess, I mean, that's kind of the sort of the sort of thing that's behind the the imbuing of your history into objects is that you know, and it was, it, I mean, it was slightly weakly done, but you know, Emma was worried because Ed was going to say, "This is all over again," but it mm. became you know, actually the thing that he didn't like was the coffee table, so it's gone. And it is fascinating how your material culture, that layered stuff, I mean, yes, the Miller things about how you craft um, your home and what, you know, that active business of, um, you know. Yeah. Very, very interesting. For people who are not not familiar with the Miller book, it's absolutely fascinating. um, He did a study of a whole street in South London and went into every house. And there's there's a chapter in the book about each house and the person who lives in it and all their objects. It's it's absolutely fascinating. It's amazing. And there's also work um, from um, a developing world context by Teresa Caldiera. And she does this mad thing of going into the favelas and there's a sort of material culture around this specific kind of container. It's like um, three that fit inside each other, like a small, medium and a large. And in all over sort of shanty towns and favelas of all kinds, informal settlements of all kinds, you'll see this visual reference, this mm. box, medium box, big box. And she, I sat, um, I sat through kind of two hours of, here is this example of small box medium. And it was literally amazing that this is not something, you know, you, it's not like you see a house on the telly and think I'll have that, but this kind of somehow has traveled all over the globe into informal settlements as a sign mm. of permanence and a sort of a claim staking thing, you know, amazing work, amazing. I, I really recommend that if anyone's uh, into reading material culture of um, informal settlements, and that's Teresa Caldiera because most of her field work is in uh, Brazil. Amazing. Mm. Cool. Thank you very much. Okay. Are we at our time today? Any other questions or any other points? But otherwise, I think we're, we're nearing our just over the hour time, aren't we? Could we the, have quirk a- is, the quirk Please. is all talking about craft. And quite right too. Could we have the Miller book reference again, please? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's called. Um, it's called the Comfort of Things. Um, and it's by Daniel Miller, uh, two thousand and eight. 
I tell you what I think is interesting about, I mean, that, I love that book when it came out. And I felt very attacked by then sort of minimalism. Not that I don't think that um, modernist architecture isn't beautiful, but the notion of kind of eradicating your past by throwing away all your dust catchers, I find very, uh, quite difficult. And it's completely the opposite of this kind of aesthetic. This kind, I love this kind of hoarded, carefully curated kind of, um, special things. I, it's very, it's very mm -hmm. it speaks to my inner golem, you know. Mm -hmm. But, but you know, much sleeker aesthetics are mm -hmm. a deliberate attempt to. I mean, you can't really imagine Tom and Natasha having a lot of um, dust patches. <laughs> That's they're going to be going for a sort of, you know, yeah. Yeah. tabula rasa kind of clean lines. Kind of, I'm a new thing. Yeah. If and I that, could, yeah, can I just tell a little story, which is that when the Daniel Miller book came out. Um, Tamsin Winhurst, who is now the chair of trustees of the David Parr House, was working at what was then the Cambridge Folk Museum and is now called the Museum of Cambridge. Yeah. And she put on an exhibition called A Space of One's Own, kind of inspired by the Daniel Miller book. Yeah. And uh, that's how she discovered the David Parr House because somebody contacted her and said, there's a very interesting house in Cambridge that you ought to go and have a look at, but I'm not sure if the old lady who lives there will let you in. <laughs> and Tamsin was able to get into the house and much to everybody's astonishment, not only did Elsie Palmer let her in, but she took her into the drawing room, which was where nobody was really allowed to go and let her take photographs and let her record um, a conversation. And she showed, Tamsin, her grandfather's notebook, because when David Parr was doing the work on the house, he kept a meticulous record of all the work he did in the different rooms. And that's how we know so much about the decoration in the house. And when we're giving tours, we can tell people, you know, he did this in such and such a year and, and so on. So um, that, that's really how uh, the house came to be discovered and that's partly why we're doing this online exhibition at the moment called uh, called a space of one's own oh please give us the link because that sounds fabulous it's, so on the the, it's on the david powerhouse website if you just go to davidpowerhouse.org uh, the exhibition is on the front page of the website we'll put it in the in the facebook group so that's the, so Lu <laughs> louise then said i'm not ready to leave yet so the, the chat now, the quack, has moved into people's no. sense of attachment to things or not. It's very interesting. So I'll just scroll through. Ah, yes. Um, and that was another thing as well, because uh, when I was doing the cataloguing, um, yeah. we used to go, I, I went along once a week and we went through all the objects. We had to take everything out of the house while the conservation work was being done on the house. There were over 5,000 objects in the house. Of course. Amazing. So, team of people who catalogued them all and every week when I went home from my cataloguing session I thought oh my god I have to throw stuff away <laughs> that's right I think that, so somebody's mentioned uh, sorry I, I'm, I'm, I'm moving between them so Kate's Marie Kondo oh yes Catherine Hoskins saying remember Kate she did a Marie Kondo and laid her possessions out on a sheet and went through working out whether they bought her joy. That's the opposite of collecting. I mean, that's an active kind of shedding. As I say, I think that that's definitely much more sort of culturally, um, you know, all these things are about um, how you present and, and, and what's high status and what's low status. And I think 
a notion that you've got a very few beautiful but expensive items is kind of a thing you know mm-hmm. i'm just reminded of another amazing i love i love kind of obscure papers about material culture actually i've just remembered it's like a, a a love of mine so it was completely kind of um very very introverted professor had done work on humans can only catalogue seven deep so it's true whether it's on your computer or in your house you you either have you know um a drawer with a box in it with a thing in it but people don't go deeper than seven and i thought this was fascinating and i've been trying to disprove it all my life so if you can think in your house of anywhere that you've got a thing in another thing up to seven but if you go up to eight it's basically more than the brain can cope with. You can have a taxonomy. <laughs> and that's what I was going to say about linking the two papers together. The queering stuff is emerging out of a place which is, it used to be that there was a very clear taxonomy. Man, woman, this person, this person, you know, and, and it was all laid out. Um, and, but as Karen mentioned about Foucault, really Foucault's point, although he was extremely interested in uh, both, um, you know, uh, ways to just, just define his own sexuality and and taking of copious amounts of lysergic acid it's all about a disruption of category so what i think is interesting is that the taxonomy and the sorting and the cataloging and that impulse that you're demonstrating in the david parr house and also i mean pit rivers is like the high watermark really for the notion that the world is both knowable and kind of you can dominate it. It's really, you know, it's only through the only extent, the only way that you might get to the edge of human knowledge is because you're bored that you've stapled all the butterflies to couldn't accommodate all the butterflies. Right. And I think that this is a really interesting thing about how to know and to categorize. And it does link both from, um, identity from, um, you know, uh, how how one categorizes one's own behavior into then what one has and it and that that to me there's a very clear connection between having and being and the category numbers you know and the uh, you know how to how we order our experience i guess is what's it there in both papers sorry i'm sorry i uh that took me a while to get to isn't it <laughs> the ordering of things and the ordering of people into either hierarchies or into sort of semantic webs of meaning i guess is the is is the kind of work of life in a way and it's fascinating to have two papers that ostensibly come from very different things um that are both about that really it's about the urge to manage your universe Mm -hmm. whether it's the being or the having of things and people i think i just think it's beautiful and one arguably is ultimately about subjects as in how one navigates one's own sexual self and one's own sort of het normal relationship escalator and the other one is about what is the role of objects and that's and essentially the interplay between those two again that's why I said that's why I was mentioning the aesthetics so much in Karen's piece is that because there are aesthetics politics you know there's there's a craft that there's just so many categories to all those things and i just think it's um mm. sorry i'm just ranting now aren't i <laughs> how we know things has been demonstrated really clearly in both one's view of one's own sexuality and one's interest in one's own heritage and 
history in in a in a in a in a house and in dwelling so in a sense you're coming at the most extreme sort of meaning of home in both papers i guess mm. okay Meanwhile, thank you very much everybody sorry sorry Chloe, that was a bit that went off a bit didn't it <laughs> hopefully fingers crossed this one will record uh, <laughs> we will see um and i will post it up later if it does i won't be able to get onto the box office stuff immediately as quickly as usual today but i, I will get it done over the weekend don't worry about that right. so i will unmeet you all uh so we can all say goodbye oh no it's, it won't let you see this is this is now worrying me it won't let me um do you all want to unmeet yourselves and we can say goodbye <laughs> hey darling Bye, everyone. Bye. 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 Thank you very much. Bye.